please turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. As you turn there, just a couple of uh, reminders of things Mike uh, mentioned earlier that I want to highlight again. Uh, This weekend is our uh, Discipleship and Biblical Counseling Conference, and several tracks there encourage you to be a part of that. And uh, normally, on the, the first weekend of March, when we do our Biblical Counseling Conference, we don't have Sunday evening service in the evening, but this month we are going to, in the month of March we're going to, and we're going to, to spend some time Sunday evening talking about uh, the, the nature of the church. We're kind of working our way through our new teaching statement, the, or the teaching statement that we're proposing, and we're going to be talking about what we teach about the nature of the church, about things like membership and community and the purpose of the church and the Lord's Supper and baptism, things like that. So uh, it, it, these have been good conversations, and we think these conversations are important to have before we vote on the changes to the Constitution, bylaws, teaching statement uh, in April. And so we're going to talk about those and can encourage you to, to come out uh, on March the 3rd. Also at 4.30, before the evening service, there's going to be a time for Q&A. So if you have any questions about, hey, you know, saw this, what does this mean? I think it's just really important that we're very, uh, very transparent and that there's a good opportunity for conversation as we make these changes as, as a family. And also, just want to encourage you, as Mike mentioned, if you're new to the church, would love to have you come and be a part of our newcomer meal uh, after the service. And then, then finally, as, as we get our attention turned toward the text here, I want to encourage you to be preparing your hearts. Uh, we're going to be t- taking the Lord's Supper together uh, here at the end of the service, and all who are believers are invited to participate in that. And we'll talk more about that as we come to the end of our, our time looking at God's Word together. But would encourage you to be preparing your hearts for participation in the Lord's Supper as a church here in a little bit. But here we are in Galatians 3, and we're going to be reading together uh, from Galatians 3, verses 19 through 24. And if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read His Word together. Galatians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You may be seated. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all your word. We know that all your words are good. All your words are true. And so we thank you for all your word, and we thank you for the law. We pray that as we come this morning to think about the law and about the effect of the law in our lives, we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened,
we'd have a greater understanding of our sin and then at the same time a greater understanding of our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. I want you to, to put yourself in the, the sandals of the Galatians, the, the Galatian believers. So you're, you're there, you're a believer in this region, and you're part of a church. And, and here's, here's what's taken place over the last few years. First, Paul has come into the region, and he, he preached the gospel. And as his authority, he used the, the Jewish scriptures, he used the, the law and the prophets, and he showed both from his personal testimony and with the authority of the, the word of God, he, he showed you that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah, and you, you believed that message. And then Paul left. And then Paul came back. And Paul helped your church set up elders. So now there are these men in the church, and the elders are teaching you. And, and what are they using to teach you? They're, they're using what we would call the Old Testament. They're using the, the law and the prophets. And they're saying, okay, here's, here's what this teaches about the character of God and, and who he is and what he's like. And here's what it teaches us about his, his son and his salvation and, and faith. So, that's, so you're hearing that message. And you're hearing that message preached from Scripture. And then some new guys show up. And they say, you know, the, the message that Paul told you is, is true. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. But remember, he's revealed in these, in these writings, in the writings of the law and the prophets. And so if you, if you really want to be obedient to God, you need to, to follow his word. You need to become more Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. This faith is a Jewish faith. The Messiah is a Jew. You, you need to become more Jewish. And so some of the people, again, think about this from their perspective, some of the people begin to, to do these things. And now, now you get this, this letter from Paul. And the letter from Paul begins, I, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who want to trouble you, and distort the gospel of Christ. And so imagine your confusion. Imagine kind of the, the perplexing nature of, of what's taking place here. You might reasonably ask the question, if you're in their perspective, say, okay, so Paul, you came and you preached to us from the law, and now, and now you're telling us that for us to follow the law is to follow a different gospel. To do the works of the law is not to do the works of faith. A very reasonable question for you to ask might be the question that Paul begins this paragraph with. Well then, Paul, why then the law? What's, what's the purpose of the law? Isn't all of God's word true? Isn't all of God's word helpful? Should we ignore what's been written in the law? These are questions that a reasonable person might struggle with. A reasonable response by the Galatians might be, well, what do I do then? 
with the law. And it's also, I would suggest to you this morning, a reasonable question for you and for me to ask as well. We're people, I hope, we're people who, who love God's word. We're, we're, we're people that want to, to study God's word deeply. We come to passages like Psalm 119, where the psalmist says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandments. And we say, well, that's, that's the desire of my heart as well. I want to be one who doesn't wander from God's commandments. I want to be one who has stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's, that's the desire of our hearts as well. And so what do we do with this section of Scripture we, we call the law? Why then is the law here in God's word? What do we do with it? Here's what I want us to think about this morning. Here's kind of the main idea that I want us to to wrestle with as we think about this section of Scripture. I can come to the law in the Old Testament. As I come to the law, I can be grieved by the presence of sin in my heart, fearful of its consequences, and awed by the power of my Savior. So as I come to the law in in God's word, what happens? I'm made aware of my sin and I'm I'm grieved by it. I'm aware of the consequences of sin and, and I'm fearful. And then I'm also awed by the power of my Savior. So let's let's first take the, the first aspect of that, number one, and let's talk about how I come to the law and grieved by the presence of sin in my heart. And by the way, if you're, if you're wanting to, to talk about this more, remember we've we talked about this when we were going through the book of Exodus. There's a series of messages where we talked more about the law in the Old Covenant. You can look at those messages as well. But let's look at what Paul's saying here. Number one, I come to the law, and I'm grieved by the presence of sin in my heart. He starts off, verse 19, why? Than the law. Again, an obvious question based on the context. And let's think about some of the things that Paul has said about the law. Not just here in Galatians, but other places as well. You look at what Paul says about the law, and sometimes he says some things that seem very negative, right? So, for example, when he talks about the law, sometimes he emphasizes how. The law can't save us. It can't justify us. So, for example, Galatians chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Romans three twenty-eight. a few verses later, we hold that no one is justified by the law. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians chapter 2, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also, Paul says, we who are Jews who are following the law, what do we do? We also have believed in, in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 3.10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. So Paul 
negatively says, look, the law can't save me. He also talks about how the, the law is, is oppressive. In, in Romans 6, 14, he says, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law but under grace. So, so grace is contrasted with the law there. In Romans chapter 7, he talks about how we've been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. And so he, he describes the law as, as this, this oppressive thing. And here in Galatians, he's told the, the reader that, look, the law is something that can't bring about sanctification. As he comes to chapter 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then he continues to, to talk about the, the necessity of not of the law but of the Spirit. Are you so foolish, he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, you began with the Spirit, are you now trying to follow the law in your flesh and find sanctification? That is simply not going to work. And so sometimes, as Paul talks about the law, he, he describes it in very negative terms, right? But he also has positive things to say about the law, good things. In Romans 7, he says, shall we say that the law is sin? This is Romans 7, 7. He says, by no means. In verse 12 of Romans 7, he says, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. And he says in verse 14 of Romans 7, we know that the law is spiritual. So he asks the question that the Galatians are asking as well. Because, you know, Paul, you've preached to us from the law. You're, in fact, as you're going through the book of Galatians and you're making these points, you're basing them on the law. Why then the law? What, how should we understand the law? And, and look at what he says. Why then the law? He answers the question with these words. He says, it was added because of what? It was added because of transgressions. You say, now, now Daniel, what, what does that mean? He says, why then the law? Well, the law was added. So you had the promises to Abraham. Then comes the law. Why? Why did, why did God give the law? He says it was added because of transgressions. What does that mean? Some people have thought, well, maybe that means that the law came because, because there were transgressions. So there's all this sin, and now you have the law, and the law helps restrain sin. And that's certainly sometimes how we see Scripture describe the purpose and the function of the law. But here I think Paul is saying something else. I think that word because of means, means to result in. So in other words, he's saying the law came in order to, to cause transgressions or to increase transgressions. The law came so that there would be transgressions. And you say, well, Daniel, why in the world would God give the law so that there could be more trespasses? Listen to how Paul describes this in other places. In, in Romans 5, for example, he says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 4.14 says, The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. says, I still don't understand. Paul is saying 
that the presence of the law causes there to be more transgressions. More, the more law that is there, the more transgressions, the more, the more disobedience of the law exists. So here's, here's what he says in Romans 7. Shall we say the law is sin? We've read this already by no means. But listen to what else he says. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to, to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. Then verse 12, again, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So let's, let's walk through this. He says the law is good, but the law is given to cause transgression. He said, well, why would God want there to be transgression? Because what does transgression reveal? It reveals sin. Transgression of the law reveals sin. Transgression doesn't cause sin. The sin is already there. The law reveals the sin that is already present. Think about it this way. Now, I, I, know, I know that uh, not everyone in here who is of driving age and drives a car, I, I know that not everyone who drives a car and speeds is, is doing so uh, sinfully. Okay, we'll just acknowledge, just, we'll just, or maybe not. We're just going to put that to the side, okay, because I know there's a lot. Well, but let's just, for the sake of illustration, this is just for the sake of illustration, let's pretend that there are some people in this room who, when they drive over the speed limit, are not doing so for God-glorifying reasons. Okay? They're, they're not saying, you know, I, I believe the best way for me to glorify God is to arrive at this place more quickly. Let's pretend that some people, as they speed, are doing so because there's a heart of impatience. And some people, for the sake of the illustration, are, are speeding because they, they don't like people telling them how fast they can go. In other words, I, I'm driving and I, I see a, a speed limit sign that says 45 miles an hour and I say, no, you know what? Uh, I need to go 55 miles an hour. And I'm not going 55 miles an hour because I believe 55 miles an hour is the, the speed that God just designed me to travel because if the speed limit says 65, then I'm going to go 75 or 85. You know, so there's, there's, there's something within me for the sake of the illustration there's something within me that says, I don't think you should tell me how fast I can travel in this car. And there's something within me that says, I, whatever speed I'm going, I need to get there faster. There's a, a sense of impatience. Now, the speed limit sign, the, the posted speed limit, and the, the existence of speed limits doesn't create impatience, right? Right? It doesn't create rebellion within my heart. Some people might say, man, if there weren't any speed limits, I wouldn't struggle with authority. No, no, the, 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 the speed limit just reveals the struggle that's already there. Tomorrow, if we said, okay, there are no, in central Illinois, there are now no longer any speed restrictions, I believe crime in our church, crime committed by members of our church would decrease by like 90%. Sin would decrease by how much? Zero. Sin would decrease by 0% because what is transgression doing? 
The law is causing transgression, but it's just revealing the sin that's already there. Now, why would God want to create laws that cause transgression? Why would he do that? To reveal sin. I come to the law, and, and I realize the depth of my sin, and I'm grieved by the presence of sin in my heart, right? Let me give you some examples. I come to a passage like Leviticus chapter 1. In Leviticus 1, it says if, if, uh, it talks about a burnt offering. It says if, if a person is going to offer a burnt offering, he shall offer a male without blemish, and he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Now, what, what, is, what does Leviticus 1 tell me? I need to offer this sacrifice to the Lord, and it needs to be a, a good sacrifice, and it needs to be a male without blemish. Now, I've always been selfish. I'm, I'm an Israelite. I've always been selfish. I've always had a low view of the value of God. But now, as I come to the law and I, re- I, I read what I'm supposed to do, I hear what I'm supposed to do, and I fail to do it, I, I transgress the law, but it reveals the sin that's always been there. I've always failed to honor God as holy. Now, the law that God gives me just reveals the lack of love of God and recognition of his holiness that's always been there. I come to another part of the law And it tells me how to treat the poor. Leviticus 19, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Same thing. I've never loved the poor. I've never been passionate about meeting their needs. But now there's a, a... There's a construct in which I'm supposed to do it. There's a law that's been given. And now that I encounter that law, my heart says, I'm not going to obey that. And we could say, man, if the law wasn't there, I wouldn't struggle with sin. But no, the the sin is already present. The law reveals the, the sin that is already present in my heart. Now, this is what else Paul says here in Galatians 3. He says, it was added because of transgressions, but it was, it was for a limited time. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That's, that's Jesus, right? And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but, but God is one. Paul is saying here the law was of limited duration. It was added for a certain amount of time until Christ could come. It was never intended to be this thing that would always exist for us to follow. And it was given in an inferior way to the Abrahamic covenant. God himself makes the covenant with Abraham. God, through an intermediary, makes the covenant. Intermediaries makes the covenant with Moses. Acts 7, Stephen talks about how the, the Jews received the law delivered by angels. Hebrews 2, 2 says the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. This message was for a limited time. And during this time, until the Christ comes, the, the law is causing there to be increased transgressions and a recognition of the need for a Savior. Now, does this aspect of the law still continue? And I think the answer is, is yes, although in a different way. 
I still come to passages in God's word in the Old Testament, and it still causes me as I come to it to be grieved by the presence of sin in my heart. I come to those passages about offering a a sacrifice to the Lord and and recognize my own selfishness. I I see how I'm supposed to treat the poor or how they're supposed to treat the poor in the society. I realize that I don't treat the poor the way that I'm supposed to treat them. I come to other passages in the Old Testament that talk about the application of law. For example, I come to Malachi chapter 1. And in Malachi chapter 1, God says to the people, You shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. He talks about how the priests are despising his name. And they say, well, how are we despising God's name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? And God responds, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that, essentially present that garbage to your governor. Would he accept you or find you? favorable, says the Lord of hosts. And then God says this in verse 10 of Malachi chapter 1, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, is that written to me? I've never offered a sacrifice in my life. I've never even owned a, like a sheep or a, a, a goat or a cow or anything. Some of you have. So how is this applicable to me? I, I go to it and I'm, I'm, I'm convicted by, by my lack of, of the gifts that I respond in, in worship to the Lord. And I'm, I'm, I realize that the depth of my sin, I, I look at how I'm supposed to treat those that God has brought into my life and I recognize as I come to the law that just I am the Israelites. I have the same sin in my heart that they struggled with and that was revealed to them. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been revealed. It was for a temporary time to reveal sin. I come to the law now, and what happens? I'm grieved by the presence of sin in my heart. Here's the second thing, number two. I come to the law, and and I'm fearful of the consequences of sin. When I come to the law, I'm struck by the, the terrible consequences of sin, Paul then asks a second question. So he's, he's asked the first question, why the law? And then he asks kind of a similar question here in verse 21. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So, so Paul, if, if you're saying that this is the work of faith, this is the, 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 the life of faith, living by, by faith in Jesus Christ, and that's, that's the, the path to justification, and then over here are works of the law, does that mean that the law is pulling us in a different direction than the promises? So the promises are saying, here's how you place your faith in the Messiah, the offspring, the Christ, and the law is pulling us into this, this works-based religion that will draw us away from God. Is, is the law, the presence of the law, like a trick? 
Is it like a, a gingerbread house that, you know, in the Hansel and Gretel story that they, they say, oh, this kind of looks nice, I'll follow this. And ah, oh, it's a trap. Did God give us the law to trap us? There's this uh, story written in the late 1950s, uh, Alas, Babylon by Pat Frank. And it's a story of uh, America, a little section of America after a nuclear war. And it kind of talks about life after this, this, um, this attack. This, this war between the USSR and the United States and other nations. And, and there's this scene, as life is kind of trying to continue to go on, there's this, this scene at the end of one of the chapters where a banker, who's kind of spent his whole life in the financial world, this, this banker goes to get his, his car fueled, and he tries, after the gas attendant gives him a little bit of gas, he, he tries to, to pay. And the gas attendant, the service station attendant says, no, you're just, just take it. Your money's worthless, right? And, and the banker is, is shaken. And there's this, this line where, where the banker thinks in his head, if the dollar is worthless, life is worthless. In other words, I've, I've been living my life under this, this whole construct of this financial world, and, and now I come to the end of this, this existence, and the dollar no longer means anything. The financial world no longer means anything. Is that what God was doing to the Jews? Is that what is happening with the law? Is it like, hey, here's some sort of make-believe reality for you to live in, but eventually you're going to find out that it's, it's all pointless, all worthless, ha, ha, ha. Is, is that what the law was doing? Is it contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, no, 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 certainly not. Absolutely not. That was not the function, that was not the purpose of the law. The law functioned differently. He says, if there was a law, if there was some rule that you could do that would bring about righteousness, God would have done that. It, he says, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So if there's some sort of law that, that God could give you that you could do that would cause righteousness, then, then yeah, righteousness would be by the law. But the purpose of the law was never, never to bring about righteousness. It wasn't even pretending, hey, do this and you'll get righteousness. That was not the purpose, that was not the function of the law. He says instead it was to do what? Verse 22. He says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That is the, the Old Testament, and, and specifically the law, I think he's, he's saying here, caused you to realize the power and the penalty of sin. It was like a, a prison. There was no escape from it. It was that the consequences of sin were, were awesome, there were, and there was no escape from these consequences through your works. And so the, the law was like, this, like this, this constant reminder that, hey, you are struggling with sin, and there is no path in and of yourself that you can follow in order to escape the terrible nature of sin, the consequences of sin, no way to flee sin and its punishment. David comes to this conclusion in Psalm 51 as, as he's contemplating his sin of adultery and murder. And, he, and what does he say? He says as he cries out to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my what? Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, my sin, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The person who 
who looks to the law recognizes their sin in the law and recognizes the terrible consequences of sin because of, of transgression against the law and realizes there's no escape. There's no escape from my sin, from myself. I, I, need, I need God. I need a Savior. I, I need his mercy. And so like David in Psalm 51, the person who comes to the law and fears the consequences of sin cries out to God for his mercy. Someone in our, in our church uh, recently sent me a, an article and the article was by Trevin Wax. I think it was in the Gospel Coalition. And uh, the, the article was a response to a recent Barna poll that, that surveyed um, millennials, uh, people in their 20s and 30s. And the, the Barna report said that about half of young people in their 20s and 30s believe it's, it's wrong to evangelize people. And Trevin Wax was kind of wondering why that was. And one of, one of the thoughts that he had, he said, well, well perhaps, perhaps people don't believe in the, the necessity of evangelizing because they don't recognize the, the terrible consequences of sin and the reality of hell. He says, we should shudder at churches that don't shudder at hell. And what happens when we come to the law, when we come to the law as, as a church, as we come to the law and these sections of Scripture as, as a church body and other passages in Scripture that talk about the consequences of sin, we, we shudder, we, we recognize the terrible nature, the immediate and the eternal consequences of sin. Some of you are probably doing the, the read through the Bible in a year, you know, start in Genesis and maybe some sort of plan. And if you are, you, you probably are in Numbers-ish right now, right? I'm, I'm reading through, and I was in Numbers this, this past week. And the last couple weeks, there have been a, a couple times where I've, I've come to these passages, and you, you see some of the consequences for sin, and it, it just, you just recoil at, at what the Scripture records. So, for example, in, in Numbers chapter 15 this, this past week, there was a... a, a a man that was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And so he's transgressing the law. And, and what's the penalty for this transgression of, of, of the Sabbath? It's, it's the death penalty. And, and you're, you're reading that and you think, the death penalty? Well, that seems severe. There's another story uh, this, this past week in Numbers 25, and there's this, this act of immorality that's taking place in, in a place of worship, and it's just this, this horrendous act. And one of the, the priests comes and takes a spear and runs it through the bodies of the people who are engaged in this act of immorality. And you think, well, well that seems rather severe. That seems very harsh. As we come to the law, we come to passages that, that cause our, our hearts to kind of just, just collapse within us as we recognize this, this is the penalty of sin. There are the immediate temporal consequences of sin that the law reveals. And as I come to this passage, these passages, I say, okay, this is how God deals with, with sin temporarily. I recognize that God is going to deal with sin eternally as well. It reminds me of, of passages like Revelation and Revelation 21, describing how that the dead are going to be judged 
by their, uh, by, by their works, those who are not in Christ, and how the sea is going to give up the dead someday. Death and Hades are going to be given up. And death and Hades are going to be thrown into a, to the lake of fire. And this is a second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. I come to the law and I'm fearful of that. I'm fearful of the consequences of sin. John Stott said this. He says, not until the law has bruised and smitten us, not until the law has bruised and smitten us, will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us up to heaven. Brothers and sisters, are, are, you, are you appropriately fearful of sin, of its consequences? Do you say, I, you know, I, I'm fearful of, of the sin of greed, and I recognize the, the danger that greed is to my eternal soul, and I'm going to treat greed appropriately as I recognize the consequences of greed. I, I'm fearful of immorality, and I know that I live in a culture that's awash in immorality, but I'm fearful of where that, lo- that road leads. I'm, I'm fearful of where that road ends, and so I'm going to respond appropriately and, and treat sin with the fear that it deserves recognition of its power. And furthermore, I'm going to recognize, as I, as I come to the law, I'm going to recognize there's sin in my heart, there are consequences to this, to this sin, and that brings us to the third thing. I come to the law, I come to the law, and I'm awed by the power of my Savior. The sin of not treating my, my family well has, has eternal consequences. The sin of immorality has eternal consequences. The, the sin of anger has eternal consequences. The, the sin of, of greed has eternal consequences. And I, I come to the law and I say, I, I can't deal with these consequences in and of myself. God, please help me. That's what, what Paul says. Now before faith came, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so again, there's this idea of of being in prison. Verse 22 said imprisoned. Uh, That means being closed or or shut up by an enemy. Here the idea is being held held captive by this this enemy power. And and the emphasis here is on the power that sin had over us. There's there's kind of this culmination of the the first two points that we've we've looked at. But but now we see the law is also serving as, as a guardian, that word guardian describes a, a servant that would be in a house, usually a household slave, and that servant would pay attention to the, the younger children, teaching them the morals. They, they wouldn't be in the house forever. They were there for a period of time until an age of maturity. And those who insist on following the law and saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to continue to follow the law, 
and we're going to come back to this as we go into chapter 4 especially, those who say we need to continue to follow the law miss the watershed event that is the coming of Jesus Christ. The law wasn't designed to exist there forever. The law is just like this guardian that's there for a a short period of time saying, hey, you need something greater than than what I can offer you. You need need a Messiah. You need the Christ. You need a Savior. You need the, the deliverer that God is promising and now, so Paul's point is, look, now, now that you have Jesus, to turn back to the law would just be utter foolishness. It's contrary to the gospel. It minimizes Christ's work and his righteousness. It fails to understand the watershed event that is the coming of Christ. So the law. The law is an anti-gospel. The law proclaims the gospel. The rules won't make us moral. The instructions don't make us holy. You can modify my behavior. You can say, okay, Daniel, I know that um, you, drink, you drink too many diet sodas. And so we're going to put you on this, this plant. We're going to put a chart up in your house. And, and uh, every day that you don't drink a diet so we're going to give you a star. And you're going to you're going to slowly stop drinking diet soda, and you're going to, you're going to find your behavior changed. And, and you could do that. You could, you could do some things to, to motivate me to, to change my behavior. But at the end of the day, I, I still have a heart that loves idols and wants pleasure, whether it be in a Diet Coke or a cup of coffee or whatever it is. I, Unless that heart changes where I say, you know what? That the things that I'm going to consume are going to be done for the glory of God and not for my self-pleasure. Until that changes, it's, it's just stickers on a chart, right? This past week, Whitney and I were at a, a conference in Texas and we heard uh, Ted Tripp speak. And uh, Ted Tripp was, was talking about this, this illustration of, of ice cream where he, he talks about how he'll get his wife and himself a bowl of ice cream, and so he'll have these two bowls of ice cream, and he's, he's getting ready to, to give the bowl of ice cream to his wife. What is he doing? He's, he's checking which one's bigger, you know, kind of weighing them in, in his hand. And, and uh, for what, you know, just that, that selfishness of the human heart just can't help but get, you know, okay, this, there's like a teaspoon more of ice cream in this bowl, and so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give that one to her, make sure I don't get these mixed up, you know. Put, put the spoon a certain way in the, the bowl that has more ice cream. So Whitney, I, I heard, that, heard him tell that story, and I leaned over to Whitney. I said, hey, do you remember when we were at a conference 15 years ago and we heard him give that same illustration? She said, yes. I said, I've been watching you give me ice cream ever since, <laughs> just to make sure. I said that, but that wasn't true. I, I said, that's, that's not, actually, that's not true. It's, it's, I said, it's actually why, it's actually why I just let us each get our own ice cream. Uh, I said, because I start going crazy uh, as, I, as I start dipping out the ice cream. I said, it's, it's been, uh, you know, sometimes when I've, I've gone to get you ice cream, I've been like just obsessive with making sure that they're exactly the right same amount and then giving myself the extra scoop. You know, it's just, that's life under the law. Life under the law says, okay, I, I've got to, I, I've, got to continue, I've got to do these things exactly right now. I don't do these things exactly right, then I'm not in right relationship with God. 
That's not the purpose of the law. The law says, look, uh, I come to the law, and the rule is be fair in how you treat people. I look at myself and how I do the ice cream and say, you know what? This heart is desperately wicked. God, please save me. And I turn to the only one who can save me, Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin, the leopard his spots? Then if that could happen, then you could also do good you who are accustomed to do evil. What does the law teach us? The law teaches us about waiting for, the, for God's promise to deliver the Messiah. And the law is insufficient. Christ is more than sufficient. We come to the law, Romans 10, uh, Romans 10, 4 says, we come to Christ. And Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I come to the law in the Old Testament and I'm grieved by the presence of sin in my heart. I'm fearful of the consequences of sin. I'm in awe of the power of a Savior who can take me in my depravity, who can take me in my, in my transgressions and can create within me a, a new heart. And that's a great transition for us as we begin to think about the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask the men to begin to, to make their way forward. And, and as they do so, let me just read a little bit of the, of the law to you as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper together. Let's come to the law and be pointed to our sin, fearful of its consequences, and excited about our, our Christ as we proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection together. Leviticus, Leviticus 16 talks about the Day of Atonement. This, this beautiful picture of the, the coming sacrifice of Jesus. and says in verse 15 of Leviticus 16, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. As we read that, we recognize that, that Christ is our sacrifice. We recognize that he dies not just for the sins that the Israelites committed thousands of years ago, but for our sin as well. We come to the New Testament and we see this in Hebrews chapter 9 about Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews says, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of of himself. This morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming our recognition that we are sinners. That there is a certain expectation of judgment that God will judge sin, but we also are proclaiming this morning that we have received the salvation that God offers us in his Son, Jesus Christ, his perfect sacrifice. Let me pray for us. And Father, we ask by your grace as we begin to partake of these elements of the communion that you would 
continue to draw our hearts toward you. Help us to hold, hold fast to our confession. This morning as we take the Lord's Supper, we are pro- proclaiming again as a body, as individuals, that we are sinners who are receiving your mercy, who have received your mercy in your son Jesus. And we pray that you would continue to help us be encouraged by that message as we come to your, to your word and that we continually, as we encounter sin in our heart, we would continually confess it to you and pursue you by your grace through the work of your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name, amen.